Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Did you ever wonder where all the women in your history books were? So did we, and you were in the right place. Welcome to Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime gal pals pair fine wine with fine ladies. Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for listening today. I totally thought you said gal pows, and I was like, she just calls us like a weird version of a cow. Here's the thing. I might have done that because okay. I like hesitated on the word <laughs> and then like my mouth did a weird thing. I was like, ah, oh, like funny. a cow, copped out at the last minute. We're glad you're joining us today. I've been doing weird stuttering and yeah. like mispronunciations at work all the time. Like I try to say editor. And I go, I did, 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 did. It's like that one day that I couldn't say whatever word, like physicist or oh, physics, uh, astro- whatever. Astronomy. Yeah, that's what it was. Astronomical. Astronomical. That's what astronomical. That astro- astronomical. This wine's actually hitting me pretty hard. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, so Kelly, tell us what we're drinking today. Okay. We are drinking a wine by Innocent Bystander. Uh, Moscato, and it doesn't have any description on the back of it. Good it's job, got a wine. really pretty label though, because it's like a black silhouette with purple and gray watercolor yeah. splash it across says it. Victoria 2014. So I'm assuming that's when it was made. In it Australia. was made by Victoria. No, Australia. Oh. Victoria, Australia. It was made by Victoria in Victoria, Australia in 2014. You go, Victoria. Right. Um, and like I said, it doesn't have a description, but it's almost. We can't, we're not sure if it's apricot but it's it's something along those lines where it's kind of, it's really strong up front, and then it really just, like, mellows out into a really nice fruit flavor. Yeah, it it's like that friend who comes up and they're like, oh my god, let me tell you about everything, and then they chill out and they're like, so, okay, so now you like tell me, me about you. my day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I got here, and I was like, Kelly, I need to fucking tell you about my week. You will not believe it. And then I, like, got all my crazy out, and I was like, oh, like, tell me about your week, because I love you, and I'm interested (laughs) in your life, but I just, like, needed to get this shit out. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's really good. Yeah. It's very I'm really liking it. I thought it was going to be more, like, orange citrusy, so I was really hesitant to drink it. I was like, ah, Yeah, because it's kind of like orange rosé-y color. Yeah. That's really good. I would recommend it. Yeah, for sure. So what are we cheersing to today, oh, lovely lady? Spring. Fuck I yeah, think we spring. cheers to that before, but now it's like legitimately spring. Let's, it's super nice outside right now. Let's cheers to the fact that we were supposed to get snow on Wednesday and it just rained. Yeah, and Woo! Duluth got 10 inches, so ha ha! <laughs> Fuck you, Duluth! Cheers! <laughs> Clink. Emily forgot, so I did it for I, her. I just want this in my mouth so bad. <laughs> It's real good. By the way, Duluth, you're like a lovely place. In yeah, no, <laughs> I actually really like visiting Duluth, but you yeah. know. Okay, so today for Say My Name, I'm going to briefly speak on Noriko Osumi. <gasps> yeah. You have no idea who that is. No, but I love the name. I know, right? Dr. Osumi is a neuroscientist in Japan at the Tahaku University. She researches how brain cells are related to develop. To, to the development of disorders. To just, she, I just spit all over my microphone. <laughs> the mic doesn't mind. The mic's into it. <laughs> um, she has also been instrumental in researching and gaining more information about PAX-6. PAX-6 with an X. 
Pack six is a gene that belongs to the family of genes critical in the formation of tissues and organs in embryonic development. This is Pack six is a key regulatory gene of eye and brain development, like specifically. So she's researching, you know, what comes along with Pack six being different. So that's pretty interesting. That's cool. You know, modern day women. Yeah. Say their name, man. So good on you, Noriko Ozumi. Doctor. Doctor Noriko Noriko Ozumi. Ozumi. Yeah. I know. I didn't go to med school for eight years just to be called Noriko. Like, yeah, right. Like, fucking get it add right. Add that title. <laughs> okay. All right. Moving on to our historical ladies. Yeah. Kelly, who are you covering today? I am covering, I'm going to say this, one. Camille Claudel. Ooh. Yeah. That's a sexy name. I know. You go, I actually Camille. really like Camille. Like, that's, yeah. yeah. Is it Camille or Clamille? Camille. Okay. I said it wrong. Camille. What are you doing? Like, are you... Like chlamydia, chlamydia. Uh, apparently, I I told you I've got this weird like speech thing. I think it's the wine. I think I might have a latent like speech impediment. Cause do you ever get that where you're like your mouth gets in the way of your words? Only when I'm drinking. Okay, well She's just I do drunk it all the time. All the time. I mean, it might make my life a little easier if I was just drunk all right? the time. You just wouldn't give a shit. Oh, you're mad at me? Gulp, gulp. I'm fine with that. Let's do this. Right. All right. So. I almost like choked on that word. <laughs> See? It's hard. Camille Claudel was born in Ferrey un Terredones, Essine, in northern France. Buckle up, guys. Yeah. It's a French gal. <laughs> the second child of a family of farmers and gentry. Her father, Louis Pro- Prosper Claudel, dealt in mortgages and bank transactions. Her mother, the former Louise, oh, geez, Anthenaise. Cecile Cerveau, Louise Anthony's is a hyphenated name. Okay. And it's A-T-H-A-N-A-I with two dots, S-E. <laughs> so it's like Anthony's. Everyone in France hates us right now. Hey, you can come and teach me how to pronounce French words. I'm okay with that. France, email us. So her mother came from a Champagne family of Catholic farmers and priests. The family moved to Villanueve sur Ferry while Camille was still a baby. Her younger brother, Paul Claudel, was born there in 1868. They then moved to Bar-le-Duc in 1870, Nogent-sur-Sienne in 1876, and Wassy-sur-Blaise in 1879, although they continued to spend their summers in Villanueve-sur-Ferry, and the stark landscape of that region made a deep impression on the children. So they were moving around a lot. Oh, yeah. like every day. Not every day. Every like few years. That's what it sounds like. Because it was eighteen. So it was eighteen sixty-eight. Or no, when she was a baby, they moved. So it was probably I don't know. I didn't say what year she was born. It's not in my notes. <laughs> but her brother brother was born in eighteen sixty-eight. Then they moved eighteen seventy, eighteen seventy-six, eighteen seventy-nine. And then again in 1881, which I was about to say. Do you think her dad was just super obnoxious and they kept getting kicked out of, like, villages? I don't think so. Because the next the next line is, Camille moved with her mother, brother, and younger sister to the Montparnasse area of Paris in 1881, their father remaining behind working to support them. Because they got sick of him, too. <laughs> You're so nice. 
Yikes. <laughs> I'm putting it all on the father and I have no basis for my accusations. Yeah. Wild speculation. So Cle- Clemiel was fascinated with stone and soil as a child. And as a young woman, she studied at the Academy Colarossi, one of the few places open to female students. She studied with sculptor Alfred Boucher, because at the time the Ecole des Beaux-Arts barred women from enrolling to study. Dumb. Yeah. In 1882, Claudel rented a workshop with another young woman, with other young women, actually, all mostly English, including Jesse Lipscomb. Alfred Boucher had become her mentor, and he also provided inspiration and encouragement to the next generation of sculptures. Camille was depicted by Boucher in Camille Claudel Lescent, which is like a sculpture of her. Oh, I'll put a picture up. And later she sculpted a bust of her mentor. So he did one of her and she did one of him. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, that's kind of nice. That's like how people swap art online today. Right? After teaching Camille and the other sculptors for over three years, Boucher moved to Florence. Before he left, he asked Auguste Rodin to take over the instruction of his pupils. Rodin and Camille met, and their artistic association and tumultuous and passionate relationships soon began. Ooh la la! Right? So, Rodin agreed to come and teach his pupils because the support that Boucher had given him during the Bronze Age had forged... Or the the Age of Bronze, not the Bronze Age. No, it was like, when was Completely that? Completely different. It was way the further back. The Age of Bronze, so like when they were casting a lot of things in bronze. Mm-hmm. That had forged a really strong friendship between Rodin and Boucher. Um, and so, yeah, he had Boucher had no problems in trusting his young pu- pupils to Rodin. You can say pupils. It's okay. And, <laughs> um, and Rodin was very interested in Camille's work that Boucher had showed him. Super interested, I'm sure. It says, the pathetic realism that Rodin saw in the bust. That's sad that they called it pathetic. (laughs) So, Rodin saw this realism in the bust of old Helen that Camille had done and a more conventional handling of Paul at 13, and it moved him deeply. Cool. Yeah. So he's into it. Yeah, he's into it, into her. He's into a lot of stuff. Right. The exact nature of the tasks with which Rodin entrusted her remains uncertain, but apparently she was given very difficult pieces to work on, such as hands and feet of figures for <gasps> monumental statues, sculptures specifically, notably this the sculpture The Gates of Hell. I just want to say I love that hands and feet have always been the worst part of art. Right. Like hands, feet, and eyes are like my big three. Like I know artists today where they're like, I fucking hate hands. Like or they're I like, I can't draw hands. They refuse to yeah. draw hands and feet because they're so fucking hard. Right. And I love that. It's just always been well, that this way. Is sculpting like that, man. Yeah. No. No. Thank you. So for Camille, obviously, this was a very intensive period of training under Rodin's supervision. She learned about his profiles method and the importance of expression, and in tandem, she pursued her own investigations and accepted her first solo commission and sought recognition as an independent artist at the Salon. Nice. So she's like breaking out onto her own. Yep. Between 1882 and 1889, Camille regularly exhibited busts and portraits of people close to her at the Salon des Artistes Francais. Nice. <laughs> the little the little salon of art salon of France. Well, I think it's the salon of artists of France. Oh. 
but we can go with a little. You know, all language is made up. Right? I can say whatever I want. <laughs> um, her getting in like these things exhibited was was largely thanks to Leon Gouge, Gouge, G A U C H E Z, um, who was Roden's friend and a Belgian art dealer and critic. Um, at this point, several of her works were purchased by French museums throughout the 1890s. Damn. Camille's work during this period attests to Roden's influence, obviously. Like, they were working very closely. Yeah, well, so- and she was learning from him. Exactly. Such as the torso of a standing woman and torso of a crouching woman um, show how she had grasped the expressive potential of a fragment of the human body, which was something that Roden was kind of known for. He's breaking people down into bits and pieces. Yeah. Crouching man. Via Hidden tiger. Ro- yeah, right. <laughs> um, via Rodin's The Thinker bears witness to the influence of the ignudi figures that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Wait. Rodin did The Thinker? No. He did something called The Crouching Man. Via It says Via Rodin's The Thinker, so I think it's part of his piece. But I don't think it's, like, The Thinker, because I'm pretty sure that was, like, Michelangelo or someone. Because The Thinker was a part of a much larger installation. Yeah, so it maybe. Wasn't... Or maybe he did part of it along with other artists. I The Thinker is such a famous sculpture. Yeah, why do we not know? Why do we not know who did this? I might have to look it up. No, I'm like, I think I'm going to Google this while I'm talking. Actually, here, you talk. I will Google it because I also need to put my phone on silent because okay. I just realized I did not do that. I'm I'm being super irresponsible today. Thanks. Camille did say that she she was quoted saying, I've been making sculptures for seven years and I am Monsieur Rodin's pupil, end quote, she, she, which was in a letter dated the 27th of October, 1889 to the Minister of Public Instruction and Fine Arts. So I just looked it up super yeah. quick. It was him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he has got a magnificent fucking beard. He's got the, he's got the oh, big yeah. beret. I I've, I've seen the pictures. This crazy, this dude, he looks so serious, but he's dressed like a fucking cartoon character. Right. Like this can't be real. Right. So while, you know, Roden was ex- exerting his kind of influence over her, she also exerted a certain influence over him. Especially when she be, started being recognized as an artist in her own right. Take, for example, a, a work that Camille did called Young Girl with a Sheaf, which was preceded by Rodin's Galitia, whose sensibility was very similar. Nice. So she did hers and then he did one and they're like, obviously, you know, she must have influenced him. Yeah, because this is like very similar. Right. Owing to their stylistic proximity during this period, it is sometimes easy to mistake Camille's skill for that of Rodin's in works on which she collaborated as his assistant. Whereas the head of the figure Avarice in Avarice and Lust has been erroneously attributed to her, the heads of the Slave and Laughing Man, which were signed by Rodin when they were cast in bronze, were actually molded by Camille. So he's getting credit for her work because, one, their work is similar like in style, but two, he's a dude. Yep. Cool, 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 cool. So at one point, Camille Camille actually started working in his workshop instead of in her own in 1884 and became a source of inspiration for him. She started acting as his model, his confidant, and eventually his lover. You go, girl. She never lived with him um, because he was reluctant to end his 20-year relationship with a woman named Rose Barrett. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. He what? Yep. Knowledge of the affair agitated Camille's family, especially her mother, who had already detested her for not being a boy. Oh, my 
God. And never agreed with Camille's involvement in the arts. How dare you not be a boy, but then act like you have the agency of a boy. Yeah. What? As a consequence of this rift between her and her mother, Camille ended up leaving her family home. Sad. But like, girl, honey, he's in a relationship with some lady for 20 years. Maybe like look elsewhere. Like, I'm not Um, trying to blame her. In 1892, Camille had an abortion. And afterwards, she ended her in- the intimate aspect of her relationship with Rodin, although they still saw each other quite regularly. Right. They still maintained the, re- the emotional... Professional relationship. Yep. Can you imagine getting an abortion back right? then? That I'm surprised that's not where the story ends. Yeah. Like, she died. The end. LeCornick and Pollock state that after the sculptor's physical relationship ended, because of gender-based censorship and the sexual element of Camille's work... She ended up not getting a lot of funding to get her daring ideas realized. So she started really struggling. Um, Camille, unfortunately, then had to depend on Rodin to realize them because he was a man and had the funding. Or she had to collaborate with him and let him get the lion's share of the credit. So I'm sorry. She breaks off this sexual relationship with this guy and she stops getting as much work because she doesn't have as much of association with him. It's more because her ideas were very daring. They were too sexy. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of sexual elements and they were very daring. Like a woman making naked statues was probably much more frowned upon than a man. Yeah, because, like, the statue of David yep. was, you know, so totally it, not a naked it dude. It forced her to kind of have to make, you know, it, like it said, either he she had to go to him and be like, hey, can you make this statue? That's my idea. Or be like, hey, can we collaborate on this? And you and get you more can money. put your name on it. What the fuck? That is bullshit. Yeah. He, she also ended up depending on him, on him financially since um, her her loving and wealthy father had died. And her mom fucking hated yep. her. This allowed her mother and brother, who were suspicious of her lifestyle, to keep the money and let her wander around the streets dressed in beggar's clothing. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really sad. And then she's, like, kind of forced to maintain this relationship with the guy. Like, yeah. Like, it sounds like, like they have a Like, it's not professional... intimate, but it's, like, it's almost like a dominating relationship at this point. Yeah, because she is dependent on him before it was like an equal give and take they were equals but now it's she needs him just to keep living yeah that sucks that's toxic camille's reputation did end up surviving not because of her once notorious association with rodin but because her work started speaking for itself good the novelist and art critic octave mirbeau described her as quote a revolt against nature a woman genius end quote I love that. A revolt against nature. Right. I found the first part of our episode title. Right. While her early work is very similar to Rodin's in spirit, it shows an imagination and lyricism quite her own, particularly in the famous Bronze Waltz, which is a very beautiful piece. I'll put a picture of that up, too. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. It's like this, a bunch of... It's, I think it's two figures dancing, and it's just very, very pretty. So... I realized I did um, Artemisia mm-hmm. as my artist, and I didn't, like, have any of the... F- her paintings up on my phone and i wish i had because you're like describing these to me i'm like i really want to see them now like i'm having a hard time i should have put some on the blog and i didn't i'm sorry i failed you i'm just doing all the failings no one fails me twice shing breaking of a wine bottle over my head 
But no, there's still wine in it. Oh, you gotta empty it first. <laughs> Louis Vossels states that Camille was the only sculptress on whose forehead shone the sign of a genius like Berthe Morissot, the only well-known fem- female painter of the century. So they're saying they had equal genius. Right. And that Camille's style was more virile than many of her male colleagues. You go, Camille. Others like Morhart and Karenfa concurred, saying that their styles had become so different, with Rodin being more suave and delicate, and Camille being venomous with vigorous contrast, which might have been one reason that led to their breakup, with her ultimately becoming his rival. I love that his stuff, it sounds like it's a little more dainty and romantic, and she's, like, really edgy. Am I am I interpreting yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. I love that she's getting edgy and, like, yeah. in your face, and he's like, no like let's make it all pretty and she's like bitch life is hard get a helmet right um camille's onyx and bronze small statue called la vogue which is called the wave which kind of gives you a sense of what it is um was it was a conscious break in her style from her rodin period it has a deck a more decorative quality quite different from the heroic feelings of her earlier work love it I love, I love, that's the cool thing about artists is you can kind of almost map out the different events in their life based yeah. on they how always, their art is influenced. They usually have periods. Like, yeah. if you think of, like, Picasso had his blue period and, yeah. you know, so I think that's interesting. When do you think your blue period ends? Because I feel like I've been stuck right? in that for a few years now. <laughs> After Rodin saw Camille's work named the, the Mature Age for the first time in 1899, he reacted with shock and anger. He suddenly and completely stopped supporting her. According to Aru Kloss, Rodin might have put pressure on the Ministry of Fine Arts to cancel the funding of the Braun Commission. Fuck you, dude. The Mature Age, which was released in 1900, is usually interpreted as an allegory of the three stages of life. There's a man who represents maturity, drawn into the hands of an old woman who who represents old age and death, while a young woman who represents youth tries to save him. So basically on one side you have this woman like down on her knees like trying to hold this man back and then there's the guy and then there's this old woman like kind of welcoming him forward. Okay, so it's like the the tug of war between yeah, youth and it's, death. It's very it's very beautiful. That's cool. Um, and he didn't like it? No. Suck it up, asshole. Her brother interpreted it as an allegory of her breakup with Rodin. Oh, because right? everything a woman does has to do with the men in her life. Angelo Karenfa Car- comments, quote the life that was, is, and will be in maturity contains within its movement both the rese- relentless m- movement of Clotho and the rhythmic, graceful whirling of fortune, generating a single and subsisting movement or image out of the differences within. End quote. That's lovely. According to Karanfa, Clotho and fortune, which were two different paintings or uh, sculptures actually Mm -hmm. represent the two ideas of life life is clotho portrayed as closed hopeless existence and consummated in an unending death life and fortune is celebrated as the madness of eternal present with ups and downs its rapture or total harmony i feel that that like hit me right in the gut right so it is said by arel Kloss that even though Rodin clearly signed some of her works and took credit for some of it he was not treating her different because of her gender. Apparently, it was typical for artists of this time to sign their apprentices' work. It, it's like when the, um, oh God, when the, when the, uh, 
when you're trying to become a professor or like yeah. you're a research assistant, but the, the other professor always puts there. their shit on your, yep. your, their signature on your shit. Others do criticize Roden for not giving her the acknowledgement and support she did need, though. Yeah. And deserve. True. Um, valid. And Walker argues that most historians believe Roden did what he could, he could do to help her after a separation and that her destruction of her own or, or vwee, <laughs> O-E-U-V-R-E. Okay. Ovary. Was partly responsible for the long-time neglect the art world had showed her. So this one historian is saying it wasn't Rodin, it was the art world in general. To me, it kind of sounds like both. Because it he did good with her because he was supporting her and trying to, you know, help her grow right, and everything. And suddenly he was just like, no. But then she outgrew him and he resented her for it. But then at the same time, the art world's not giving her enough credit because unless she's associated with him. Yeah. So she's getting it from both sides. It's not all on either of them. It's a multitude of issues. Yeah. I agree. Dumb. Um, Walker also says, so this is the same historian, says that what truly de- defeated Camille was, who was already recognized as a leading sculpture by many, were the shield, sheer difficulties of the medium in the market. Sculpting was an expensive art, and she did not receive many official commissions because her style was highly unusual for the contemporary conservative tastes of the time. Dumb. Um, however, despite this, other historians say that because she did this, she changed the history of the arts. She was ahead of her time. Exactly. It's like no one could appreciate it at the time, but she changed the world. Historians agree that it is unclear how much they Rodin and Claudel or Camille influenced each other, you know, because it's hard to know at this point. Yep. And it's it's hard to know how much credit was taken away from her and how much he was responsible for her woes. Most modern authors agree that she was an outstanding genius who, starting with wealth, beauty, iron will, and a brilliant future, even before meeting Rodin, was never rewarded and died in loneliness, poverty, and obscurity. What? That's how her story ends? Yeah. This is bullshit. Rewrite it. Matthews and Fleming suggest that it was not Roden, but her brother Paul who was jealous of her genius and that he conspired with her mother who never forgave her for her su- supposed immorality to later ruin her and keep her confined to a mental hospital. What? Yeah. Everyone is a dick. Cavalier Adler notes that her younger sister Louise, who desired Camille's inheritance, was also jealous of her and was delighted in her sister's downfall. Okay. So they're kind of arguing between who was really responsible for her downfall. It sounds like fucking everyone was. The dude she was dating screwed her over. The art world screwed her over. Her bitchy mother and shitty siblings screwed her over. What is going on? I have one more paragraph and then we get into the whole mental institute part. Okay, because I'm I'm upset. I'm deeply upset right now. I'm this makes me sad. Um less well known than her love affair with Roden, the nature of her relationship with Claude Debussy, which I recognize that name. I think he must have been another famous art famous artist at the time, has also been a, a an object of a lot of speculation. Stephen Barr, a historian, reports that Debussy pursued her, but it is unknown whether they ever actually became lovers or not. Okay. So he was Um, into her, but we don't know if she reciprocated. They both admired Degas and Hokusai and shared an interest in childhood and death themes. Love it. Um, And when Camille ended their relationship, whatever that was, uh, Debussy wrote, I weep for the disappearance of the dream of this dream. Oh, 
Um, That's really sad. Yeah. He admired her as a great artist and kept a copy of her sculpture, The Waltz, in his studio until his death. Damn. Unfortunately, by 30, Camille's romantic life had ended. By 30 years old? What? After 1905, Camille appeared to be mentally ill. She destroyed many of her statues, disappeared for long periods of times, and exhibited paranoia. She was diagnosed as having schizophrenia. She accused Rodin of stealing her ideas and leading a conspiracy to kill her. Okay, what was schizophrenia in 1905, though? Because yeah, exactly. I've, I've, I've heard, like, schizophrenia was just, hey, you're unstable, you have schizophrenia. It's not, like, actual schizophrenia. Right. It was just, like, an umbrella diagnosis. After the wedding of her brother in 1906 and his subsequent uh, move back to China, so apparently he lived in China, came back, got married, and went back to China. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> she lived secluded in her workshop by, by herself. While, as I said, her father approved of her career choice, apparently when he died, she wasn't informed. Oh, shit. Until eight days later. And I bet she'd, like, miss the funeral. That's when um, her younger brother admitted to her, her, her to a psychiatric facility. <gasps> so her father dies, no one tells her, and, and then, then he probably tells her and admits her to a psychiatric facility. So two things, dad's dead, and uh, you're going to live in a yep. mental ward for the rest of your life. Sound good? Yeah, yeah, cool. You're a woman, you don't get a choice. You say that, and you're kind of right, because it says the form read that she had been, air quotes, voluntarily committed yeah i call although bullshit. her admission was only signed by a doctor and her brother yeah so that she is, never signed her own admission that's fucking bullshit there are records to show that while she had some outbursts such as destroying her, her statues and stuff she was clear clear-headed when she was working on her art well, and the thing is, her life has kind of crumbled around her, and she's accusing Rodin of, like, conspiring against right. her and taking credit for her work. Well, it sounds like he fucking did. Right. Doctors at the Institute tried to, to convince Paul and her mother that Camille did not need to be in an institution, but they still kept her there. Are you serious? Yeah. According to Cecile Bertan, Bertran, a curator from the Musée Camille Claudel, so she has her own museum. She the better. Si the situation was not easy to judge because modern experts who have looked at her records do say she was ill. I mean. But it, again, like she said, it's hard to judge. Well, and the thing is, you can have a mental illness and still be able to live on your own, but it sounds like there were a lot of people who fucking hated her, right. who took advantage of whatever existing, maybe it was like depression. I mean, Britney was allowed to have a bunch of outbursts. Yeah, and she's still... In like 2007, and right. no one institutionalized her. She shaved her fucking head. Like, come on. We're al Leave women are allowed alone. <laughs> women are allowed to get upset and freak out sometimes. Oh. Um, so in 1914, as the war, you know, moved into France to be safe from advancing German troops, the patients at Ville Evrard, seriously, were relocated, which is where she was. Camille okay. was transferred with a number of other women to Mont de Vergas Asylum at Montfavat. Uh, six kilometers away from Avignon. Your certificate of admittance um, was signed September 22nd, 1914. It was reported that she suffered from, quote, a systemic persecution delirium, mostly based upon false interpretations and imaginations. 
Okay. End, end quote. So they're saying she's imagining that people are out to get her. Yeah. Basically. Okay. Well, I and mean, that she's being persecuted. Is she wrong? Right. Can we just explore that for a moment? <laughs> just a moment. Let's just touch base on that. Okay. So for a while, the the press of the time accused her family of committing a sculpture of genius, a sculptor of genius. Yeah. Okay. So other people are going. You're full of shit. Yep. You're terrible people. Yep. Good. Her mother forbade her to receive any mail from anyone other than her brother. The hospital staff regularly proposed to her family that Camille be released, but her mother adamantly refused each time. So this totally isn't voluntary. Yeah. On June 1st, 1920, physician Dr. Brunette sent a letter advising her mother to try to reintegrate her daughter into the family environment, and nothing came of it. Her mother is a goddamn monster. Paul Claudel... You're going to get really sad. Oh, no. You might need more wine. Paul Claudel visited his confined older sister seven times in the 30-year period she was confined. Fuck you, Paul. You 19, dumb so, piece of shit. 1913, 1920, 25, 27, 33, 36, and 43. He always referred to her in the past tense. Their, their younger sister, Louise, visited her one time. The mother never visited her. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even fucking surprised. In 1929, um, Camille's former friend, Jesse Lipscomb, visited her and afterwards insisted, quote, it was not true, end quote, that Camille was insane. Yeah, you think? Um, Roden's friend, Matthias Morehart, which is a great name, yeah, insisted I that Paul that. was a simpleton who had shut away his sister of a genius. Of genius. Okay, this is all well and good, but the fact that the hospital is like, Okay, she's technically here voluntarily, and she doesn't need to be. And they're not just fucking letting her out. They're, like, abiding by this psychotic mother's wishes. They are accessories to this bullshit. Camille Claudel died on October 19th, 1943, after having lived 30 years in the asylum at Montfavat, which is actually still a modern psychiatric facility. Just interesting side note. Her brother Paul had been informed of his sister's terminal illness in September and with some difficulty had crossed occupied France to see her, but he was not present at her death or funeral. Fuck him. Fuck you, Paul. When the sister found out, she did not make the journey at all. This is awful. Yep. I hate all of this. Yep. You're going to hate this. Oh my <laughs> this last God. sentence. More. Just... No, that's fine. Just keep just keep hitting me right in the gut, Kelly. Camille was interred in the cemetery at Montfavat, and eventually her remains were buried in a communal grave at the asylum. Another woman we don't know where she's buried. From a 2002 book called Camille Claudel, A Life, says, quote, 10 years after her death, Camille's bones had, had been transferred to a communal grave where they were mixed with the bones of the most destitute. Joined forever to the ground, she tried to escape for so long. Camille never, ever returned to her, her beloved Villa Nueva. Paul's neglect regarding his sister's grave is hard to forgive. While Paul decided not to be burdened with his sister grave, he took great pains, on the contrary, in choosing his own final resting place. Naming the exact location in Bragnaw under a tree next to his grandchildren, inciting the precise words to be written on his tombstone. Today, his admirers pay homage to his memory at his noble grave, but of Camille, there is not a trace. In Villanueva, a simple plaque reminds the curious visitor that Camille Claudel once lived there, but her remains are still in exile somewhere, just a few steps away from the place where she was sequestered for 30 years. 
I didn't know this was going to be a monster story. Sorry. Like, Paul is a goddamn monster. And, like, can we just accept culturally that it's appropriate to piss on his grave? Because I think you and I need to go to France. Yeah. We need to go to the Alam de Gouges Square and we need to piss on Paul's grave because what a son of a bitch. And then go to where this mental asylum is and just, like, pray or something. Pray and cry and leave flowers and stick figures because that's the only art I can produce. That's fine. Her legacy, because she does still have one. Good. The Musée Camille Claudel was opened on March 2017. It's as a French National Museum dedicated to, Camille, the, to Camille's work. Aww. It is located in her teenage home of nugent sur So we can add that to her French rotation. And deplay, displays approximately half of Claudel's 90 surviving works. That's pretty impressive. Yep. I know. Thank God nice. she has her own fucking museum. And then there's a picture and it's framed and no one can see what it is because it's just covered in spitballs. But underneath, it's, it's like her family. <laughs> yeah. um, her mom and Paul and Louise. Fuck you guys. So, like I said, she did destroy much of her work. And like I said above, there's only about 90 remaining statues, sketches, and drawings. In 1951, Paul Claudel did organize an exhibition at the Musée Rodin, because, of course, Rodin has his own museum, too. But they actually continued to display her sculpture. So Paul did get them to do that, and they continue to do that to this day. It's not good enough, though. No. Fuck um, you, Paul. A large exhibition of her work was organized in 1984, which is nice. And in 2005, a large art display featuring the works of Rodin and Camille was exhibited in Quebec City, Canada. Nice. And Detroit, Michigan. In 2008, the Musée Rodin organized a respect, retrospective exhibition, including more than 80 of her works, which if there's only 90 left, that's pretty good. Yeah. I like how the museum that's dedicated to him is acknowledging her, her. place yeah. in his life and his work. Um, yeah, I know. I really like that, too. Um, the publication of several biographies in the 1980s sparked a resurgence of interest in her. There's was a... I don't know if it's a play... I think it must be a play called Clemio Claudel. It was in 1988 and it was a dramatization of her life based largely on historical records. And it was actually super it must have depressing. been a movie because it says directed by Bruno Nieten, co-produced by Il- Isabel Adjani, starring herself as Camille and Gerard Dupardieu as Rodin. The film was nominated for two Academy Awards in 1989 and another film also called Camille Claudel premiered at the 63rd Berlin International Film Festival. One, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's been saying Clemille instead of Camille. It's hard. But two, like, I can't believe those movies came out so recently because those were, what, the 80s? Yeah. And there wasn't, there's one in 2017 as well. Which I was about what? They're all French movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Americans have no taste. Composer Jeremy Beck's work death of a little girl with doves is an operatic soliloquy for soprano and orchestra based on the life and letters of camille claudel this composition has been recorded by ryan dupuis soprano with the slavic radio symphony orchestra his composition has been described as a deeply attractive and touching piece of writing demonstrating imperious melodic confidence fluent emotion command and yielding tenderness I love all of these works of art that are dedicated to her, but I feel like I couldn't enjoy any of them because they'd just be so depressing that I wouldn't get out of bed for a week. Right. Her work has sold very well. 
Um, they sold a second edition La Valse um, for $932,500 in, in 2005. Wow. In 2006, they sold Les Dieux and Volet, which was signed and numbered six out of eight for 180000 while a comparable Rodin sculpture has a high estimate of only 75000 I'm not saying it's about size or anything, but I think we all know who won. Um, in 2011, there was a world premiere of Boris Eiffman's ballet, Rodin. Um, it took place in St. Petersburg, and the ballet was dedicated to the life and creative work of August Rodin and his apprentice lover and muse, Camille Claudel. I'm glad she's in there. Yeah. So that was her sad, sad life. You know... As difficult as it was to listen to all that, because it was just like, especially at the end, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It just, it got worse and worse and it didn't stop. It's like, just when you think this can't get worse, it it does. But I feel like that's why it's almost even, it's just as important to learn about her because she was, she was victimized for being different, for being inventive and new yeah for for doing something that other people weren't doing and being a woman doing it because you know if a guy was doing that they call him an innovator rodin ended up doing some of her sculptures and he did just fine yeah so it you can't tell me that she wasn't victimized for being a woman and then her family is fucking psychotic that was just awful and the fact she could never get away from them god well i think i think camille needs an extra cheers Cheers, Camille. Clank. All right, darling. All right. Who are you covering? Thank God. I'm not covering a terribly depressing story. <laughs> Usually it's you that does the terribly depressing story. It is, and I don't know why. I'm just so sad inside. You just want to make everyone hurt like you do. Yes. Feel my pain. If I if I share my pain, maybe it'll leave me a little bit. Okay. So I am covering... Drum roll. <laughs> The Night Witches. That actually sounds really cool. No, I'm so excited to cover this because I I didn't have a woman lined up for this week. And so I started Googling and then I... (laughs) What? Emily unprepared? I'm never. Never. Ever. (laughs) But I stumbled upon like a list of cool women and and these ladies popped up. I was like, oh shit, I've heard of them. Why didn't they come up like in my head and... Immediately. I I haven't heard of them, so let's get into this. I was going to say, buckle up. So today I'm covering the Night Witches. Strapping and strap on. I'm covering the Night Witches, the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. Ooh. Yes. Active. Military. Yes. Active from 1942 to 1945. World War II. Shit's going to get cray. When World War II broke out, many Soviet women volunteered to serve. And as we've talked about before, women were not welcome with open arms into the military. While the Soviet Union didn't have any formal bans on women serving, their applications often became trapped in red tape in an attempt to deter them from pursuing service. Oh, we lost your application. Oh, it's still being filed. Oh, Oh, we never got it. Yeah. Oh, can you resend it? Yeah, it was just fucking dumb. However... When the Nazis invaded Russia in 1941, the Soviet Union realized they needed people yep. and fast. That's when the fighting girlfriend came in, wasn't it? I actually was talking about the Night Witches with my coworker today, and he's like, "Oh, you should cover." Uh, she like 
she was a Russian soldier and she had a tank. And I was like, the fighting girlfriend, <laughs> Maria? Yeah. Oh, like, I was like, did that. Been there, done that. We what got it. it. Maria Atsubraska or something. Akatsubraskaya. Man. It's really hard. If I don't have it in front of me. Or Maria. Maria. I thought, was it Maria or Maria? Maria. It was Maria. Okay. I know. I did her. It's whatever we said in that episode. All right. Continue. Okay. Enter Marina Raskova. A little, a little about our gal Marina. She was a famous pilot and navigator in the 1930s and was the first woman to become a navigator for the Soviet Air Force in 1933. She was also the first woman to teach at the Zhukovsky Air Force Academy. Mar- cool. Yeah. No, she's breaking barriers by herself. She's got this. Uh, Marina became something of a celebrity in the Soviet Union, setting a whole bunch of long-distance flight records. And they actually, they call her the the Russian Amelia Earhart, which gives you an idea of how big of a deal she was. Yeah. But at the same time, why can't she just be Marina? Yeah, right. And like, Amelia why? can just be Amelia. Amelia. Like, I get it helps our American-centric years to, like, dumb. figure it out, but. So long story short, she's a badass. Uh, When World War II came to the Soviet Union, Marina used her status and connections with Joseph Stalin to convince the military to create three combat regiments for women. To do this, she gave a speech on October 8th, 1941, demanding that women be allowed to join the military as pilots, support staff, and engineers. Later the same day... Stalin created the all-female 122nd Aviation Corps. Yay. Same fucking day. Yeah, he's like, oh, like, shit, I better do this. No government moves this fucking quick. But just quick reminder, Stalin is still a son of a bitch. He's not a hero here, and no. I'm not trying to make him no. one. No, But he did a thing. The corps were made up of three regiments with 400 women each, and that's 1,200 women out of over 2,000 applicants. So that just shows how many women wanted to be a part right? of the military like and help. Like, no, I want to fight. Like, that's my husband and son out there. I want to help, too. Yeah, I've never... Like, I understand if you're a criminal or you're not stable, you shouldn't join the military. But, like, I've never understood these weird bans on who can and can't join the military. I'm like, don't you need as many people as possible? Don't you want as many people who are, like, feeling patriotic and enough willing? to serve? Yeah. Yeah. I... I could never serve in the military. I just, I don't have that calling. I have so much respect for people who do. That's just not who I am. I probably could. So why are you I telling have, someone? I have other things that disqualify me, but well, yeah. Why are you telling someone who's willing and able? No, because reasons. Because you're a woman. Because you have ovaries, Emily. Because you're transgender. Like, I, I'm it's so dumb. fucking yeah, sick of it's it. It's dumb. You're black. Like, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tangent. So the corps were made up of three regiments. The first was the 586 Fighter Aviation Regiment, which was the first to take part in battle. They would destroy 30 enemy aircraft in 125 air battles. Wow, that's awesome. The next was the 587th Bomb Aviation Regiment, which Marina commanded until her death in a service-related plane crash in 1943. She was the first service member to receive a state funeral during the war. Wow. Men, women, everything in between. She was the first. Wow. I I thought, yeah, I thought it was just going to be first woman, but she was just the first. Yeah. She, wow. So of the war, she was the first one to receive a state funeral, which is a big deal. Yeah. 
Because usually it's just like, well, bury them on the battlefield. We have right. to keep going. Right. Well, and then especially like she was a bit of a celebrity already, but you know, just being a woman, I'm, I'm like, um, they, no one cares. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then finally, the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, also known as the Night Witches. I always feel I love saying that. I know, it just like kind of gives you chills. The 588th is arguably the most famous of the three regiments, and you're about to find out why. The Night Witches, dubbed so by the Nazis they bombed the fuck out of, were comprised of mostly women in their teens and early 20s. They flew tiny plywood biplanes called Polikarpov U-2s that didn't have radar, radio, and weren't even intended for combat. So these are made of plywood and canvas. They're outdated. They're not even meant for combat. And they're like... It's probably why they're flying them at night. Like, well, yeah. You know, but it's harder like, to spot them kind of a thing. Hey, go fly this. And it, by the go way... Go fly this and bomb people. It has no technology. Nothing. To compensate for the lack of technology, the pilots were equipped with rulers, stopwatches, flashlights, pencils, maps, and compasses. I'm just so like, high tech. You're flying. Like you're flying a plane. Hold on. Let me measure this distance on my map. Do you have your ruler? Uh, let me grab it. Oh, what do you do with a ruler? Like, I guess you maybe use it on the map. Yeah, you you'd use but it on the map to try and calculate distances. And yeah, I can't imagine working like that. So you're flying oh, yeah. at night during World War Two. Here's a paper map and a ruler and a compass, and, a compass have and just have at it. Have at it. Little did anyone know these young women clad in secondhand men's uniforms would become the most highly decorated female unit of the Soviet Air Force. So how did they do it? I know you're dying to know. Let's take a look at the average night in the life of a night witch. The pilots would leave in their polycarpovs carrying two bombs each, one under each wing. While the planes were slow and shitty, they were fast and maneuverable in the hands of these daring pilots. The women armed with their rudimentary tools would fly to the target. As they approached, they would idle their engines and glide the rest of the way. The lack of sound combined with the cover of night allowed them to sneak up on the enemy. The only warning the Nazis had was a light whooshing sound, which they likened to the sound of broomsticks, thus the name Night Witches. I love it. Yeah, that's great. After their mission was complete, the pilots would fly back to their base, reload, and head out again, often flying between 8 and 18 missions per night. I suppose just depending on the distance they had to go. Yep. That's insane. The night witches were so deadly that any Nazi who could shoot down one of their planes was automatically awarded the Iron Cross Medal, which was a very prestigious award in Nazi Germany and a super hate symbol now. The Nazis actually thought the women were master criminals who were sent to the front lines as punishment or super soldiers who could see at night as the result of, like, super soldier injections. Yeah, because I'm sure they shot one down and was like, the fuck? She has no equipment. Right. How are they possibly doing this? Well, and the fact that they're just coming out of nowhere and just so devastating. How is this happening? Let's remember, these women are in their teens and early tw- 20s with minimal training, and the Nazis are pissing themselves. And it's so beautiful. While the planes were difficult to shoot down, that doesn't mean it never happened. One ace Nazi pilot, whose name I intentionally left out because fuck you, 
managed to shoot down four planes in one night, grounding the entire regiment for the first time. Well, yeah, I'm sure, because they're like, if he's out there and he's already downed four of our planes, like, we're not going to put the rest of them at risk. Exactly. It's like, we need to cut our losses. This is not okay. And then each plane was piloted by two people. There was the pilot and the navigator. So that's eight women. That's what I figured. Gone. I was like, so we're talking about, like, trying to fly a plane and navigate. I'm like, but I'm sure there was a second person. No, you fly with one hand, you check the map with the other, and then you do your makeup with your toes. You just, yeah. you get Reach real flexible. Reach over and have to cut the bomb off the wing. <laughs> uh, their planes were highly flammable and the pilots weren't given parachutes until 1944 because they couldn't afford the extra weight. Yep. These planes were so shitty. So being shot by even one tracer bullet could be devastating. Like that was it. You're done. The night witches abided by 12 commandments and I'm super pissed that I couldn't find all 12. But the first was, be proud, you are a woman. Fuck yeah! And now, I I left the 12 commandments part in there because it was really interesting, but I only found it in one article. And I googled, like, 12 commandments of the night witches, and the only other thing I found was someone else asking, what are the other 11? And there was no answer. Yeah. But, herstory headcanon here. There was at least one. Be proud, you're a woman. (laughs) So what do these deadly pilots do in their spare time? They would do needlework, patchwork, decorate their planes, and use... say, it's probably normal women shit. And use their navigation pencils as eyeliner. Fuck yeah. Who says you can't fight Nazis and look fucking fabulous? The Night Witch's last flight was on May 4th, 1945. So, like, didn't even get parachutes for, like, a year. Yeah. God. Hey, you know what? Most of you guys are still around. You're proving to be valuable. We'll give you some parachutes. Right. And then, like, the war ended the the next day. (laughs) Uh, They flew within 37 miles of Berlin, and three days later, Nazi Germany officially surrendered. They're like, oh, shit, they're coming. They're coming. (laughs) I know it wasn't just the night witches that caused the Nazis to surrender, but we can't deny that they were a formidable force which struck the fear struck fear into their enemies. Heck yeah. And also I like to think Hitler like peed himself a little. A little. Shit. So why do you think he was hiding in a bunker? He's like, they can't get me down here. They can't get me underground. <laughs> By the end of the war, they had lost a total of 30 pilots. As 30 I meant 30 pilots or just 30 people? Well, pilots. So I think so, that's people. Okay. Because you were saying there's two per plane, so I was like, are we talking just pilots and they're just not counting the navigators? No, I, I think it's just they, they lost 30 Yeah, 30 maybe, maybe everyone members. was trained as a pilot and they just rotated roles. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, Marina Raskova, who had create, created the Night Witches, didn't live to see the end of the war. Despite their ability to excel with limited supplies, outdated equipment, and minimal training... Six months after the end of the war, the Night Witches were disbanded and excluded from the Victory Day Parade in Moscow. Wow. Allegedly. Somebody go punch Stalin in the face. I mean. In the grave in the face. If you didn't already have a reason to punch that mofo in the face. Here More punches. (laughs) Just an extra punch. Um, This was allegedly because their planes were too slow, but let's get real here. We all know. Right, like, put that thing on a fucking trailer and just let them stand next to it. Right? Like, I, 
do you, were they actually like flying in the parade? I I don't know what the parade looked like, but I'm like, right. what you mean there was no one on the ground marching? Like, right? fuck you guys. So whether they were fighting Nazis in the air or sexual harassment and general discrimination on the ground, the Night Witches were a crucial part of defeating the Nazis in World War II and are certifiable badass babes. Fuck yeah. And then I've also got some fierce factoids about the 588th. 30,000 plus combat missions. They flew 30,000 plus combat missions by the end of the war. That's over 800 per pilot. That's insane. Boom. Well, I mean, they're going like 18 times a fucking night. And see, that's the other reason I was wondering if maybe everyone was trained as a pilot, because maybe they would come back, switch roles, go out again. Yeah. And when they say pilot, I think they're just referring to To one of the women. Yeah. Yeah. One of the service members. They dropped... 23,000 tons of bombs on the Nazis. They produced 24 heroes of the Soviet Union, which was the highest distinction of the Soviet Union. Now it's known as the Hero of the Russian Federation. Yep. And they've got stamps! Woo! Marina has two Herstory stamps, because there's one that was produced by the Soviet Union. Yep. And then she's just got like a more modern day stamp that looks like the ones that we've seen. Okay. And we'll like put those that up the on the blog. Yeah. Okay. And then uh there are also two more stamps, one for each of the leaders of the other two regiments. Aww. I couldn't I f I couldn't find their names though. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, I'll dig deeper later. And then we got late started late recording, and I so I didn't have a chance. Up and let's go. Yes. So so yeah, those are the night witches. That's that's bad. I want to be a night witch. I want to get a jean jacket that just says night witch on the back right. and has like a little bomb. Yeah, I would I would wear that. I I would wear that. That hell should out be of a that. Netflix series. Like they had like the the bomb makers or whatever it was called the bomb gals or girls whatever. Oh. They should make a series about the night witches. They fucking absolutely should. I would love that. I would watch the shit out of that. But the whole time I was doing this, I was thinking of Maria. Yeah. Our, uh, our fighting girlfriend, so. She's badass, too. And actually, I found, a, I found a story. I didn't cover her, but there was a woman who had a almost identical backstory to Maria. Yeah. Like, husband was killed. She joined the military to fight in World War II. But she became a sniper. I was going to say, was it the sniper? Because I read about her, too. Yep. And I thought about covering her, and I was like, there needs to just be a little more space. Because, I mean, it was almost like beat by beat. Yeah. That's super sad because that almost shows how like prevalent that situation was. Well, I'm, I'm sure some of the people in the women's court, all three of them were similar situations too. Oh, hell yeah. So we're ending on a positive yeah, that, note. Yeah, that's much better. Let's end on that. Yeah. So uh, I still think we need to share what we're thankful for this week. Okay, you can go first. Okay. Um, I'm thankful for two things. You may have heard me a few weeks ago say I was really thankful I didn't hit a dog. I don't know if I told that story. Mm-mm. Oh, shit. Did I not? Mm-mm. I told you that story. Okay. So a few weeks ago, I was driving to work and a dog ran out in front of my car, paused, and then ran back to where he came from before I could like do anything about it, but I didn't hit him. It was close, but I was driving very carefully and saw him. Well, today, I almost hit a baby duck. So I thought it was a fucking leaf. And so I'm getting closer and I'm like, oh, shit. And I swerve like really aggressively. So I and I like I'm looking at my rear view and I see it waddling away. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Because <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I'm so terrified of hitting animals I know, because I like can't handle it I emotionally. I know. It's always really nice. My husband, like even if it's like a fucking squirrel, he will stop for them because he knows yes. I, I can handle it. Every time. And well, then I yell at the animal like because I've had birds like fly in front of the grill of my car and I'm like, the fuck are you doing? Yes. I've had so many near misses. But like this part of the street, there have been I've seen like ducks with yeah, their babies yeah. crossing. And I'm like, just honey get out of the fucking road you're stressing me out and so i'll stop and i'll like flash my lights and put on my hazards because i don't want anyone else to run them over second thing i'm i'm thankful for when we started my battery on my laptop was at three percent i called my boyfriend and he brought over my charger like a goddamn hero good job jared we love you jared thank you polite golf claps what am i thankful for I I just got a reminder that they're not a reminder. I got a text asking if we're almost done. We are almost done. Maybe I'm not thankful for that. Carl, are you listening? We're almost fucking done. I know. Puppies, we're almost fucking done. <laughs> I think I'm actually going to go with I'm really grateful for working with the the wonderful women at I work for and especially my boss. She's just so understanding. Um it was a really busy week this week and I had to ask my boss this morning if I could reschedule a meeting with her and she just I was like, yeah, that's fine. Like, no big deal. You do you. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> like, I just need to, like, organize my shit. That's awesome. Well, and I know, I think you're like this, but I'm very, like, if my boss says something, I need to do it. Oh, yeah. I need yeah. to do it perfectly. And so, like, asking if I could, like, re- and I even said, like, in the email, I'm like, if you can't do it a different time, I can totally, like, fit it in. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll make it work. But, like, maybe if you could, if that's okay. So that kind of support yeah. and that acknowledgement is so great that, that and, you have and that then, relationship. Yeah, just like my coworkers that, you know, we, a few of us went on walks today and nice. it's just nice. It's a good environment. We can, like, joke around and stuff. It's So I'm thankful for them. I'm really happy to hear that. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Please hit us up on Instagram at WAHpod. Email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We want to hear about the women you want us to cover and the women in your life. We'll give them a shout out. Say their name. Heck yeah. Um, also find us on Facebook, Whining About Herstory. Um, you know, give us a comment, a review maybe. Like and follow us for all the fun stuff. Please. And go ahead and visit our website, whiningaboutherstory.com. We post um, our uh, a little synopsis. Okay, they're not that little, but... A shortened, say, version, <laughs> a shortened version of um, what we talk about here on the blog. And then I'm also currently going through an art installation called The Dinner Party about women. And part two of that will be up by the time this launches. And part three will be coming on the Thursday of the week this launches. Kelly, I'm thankful for all the work you put into that blog. And I'm thankful for you on our social media because I tend to forget about it. That's okay. I I'll do uh, better. I like scrolling around on social media and then pretending I'm being productive. No, this is for the, I, the I podcast. I do do that sometimes <laughs> where I'll like get on our Instagram and like go through who we're following and comment and stuff and like try to be interactive. But I'm not good about like putting content out there. Also on Instagram, check out our wine highlights. We always post what we're drinking the night of. So if you want to drink with us, you can check out what we're drinking for the next episode ahead of time. And I believe you post them on Wednesdays as well, don't you? Wine Wednesdays? I for, So I celebrate Wine Wednesdays, but I post about the wine the we just week. drank. Okay. Yep. So if you want to wait for our episodes that come out on Monday until Wednesday, you can drink with us then too. 
Just drink. Just drink. Just keep drinking. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.